Ephesians chapter 1. I wonder if you've ever been frustrated or at least a bit dissatisfied when you've had to write a resume or maybe a, a personal bio for something that's taking place or something you're hoping will happen in your life. Even just filling out a job application can bring frustration. Feelings of inadequately being able to express what you want the audience of this body of work to contain. In other words, what you want them to know about you in such a short time. I mean, let's be honest. Who can put their life on a piece of paper? A single sheet piece of paper. And we get in this form or this element of being so frustrated because we're not certain how to make sure those who will be reading this information are getting the best picture, right? Isn't that what you want to do with a resume or a job application? You want to put the best foot forward. And yet you also want them in this tiny snapshot to have an accurate picture of you. I mean, isn't that the purpose? Certainly. And yet, in some sense, we still, when we're done, get this feeling of, what can I add to it? Did I I get that just right? I mean, if you've ever written your resume and you're completely satisfied with it and everything that it's said and the way that it's presented, you've got to be in a really small percentage of the population of people in this world. And high schoolers, let me just warn you, when you start going through college applications and all of the things that they want you to present, the portfolios, the essays, all those bodies of work that they want to see and know about you, not only does it seem endless... Okay, there's still that challenge of how do I get this across? Because it is a limited amount of work. I'm sure none of you would believe this about me, but I remember in my application to seminary, there's a a question on the seminary application. And because I went to a Southern Baptist seminary, it is relative. And it said, when did you become a part of a Southern Baptist church? And I wrote, in the womb. No, no, really, I did. My dad was pastoring a Southern Baptist church at the time I was conceived and the time I was born. Now, let me tell you what I surmise from that. Either they don't read everything on those applications, because I did get in, by the way. Some of you, you really went to seminary? I know some of you have heard me (laughs) preach long enough you would question that. Yes, I really got in, and I did get a degree, So either they don't really read it, or at least they have a sense of humor in some of the questions, or I don't know. I don't don't know any other alternatives, But but I really did put that down there. And yet, even then, when we're going through these types of processes in life, there's this uncertainty, or this conclusion of we're not quite sure if we're getting everything across that we need to get across. And yet, when you think of schools and jobs... These are important aspects that make that process even heavier when you think of the lifelong implications. And so there's so much to it. And then beyond that, you're putting yourself out there and you're hoping for a certain response. And oftentimes, it doesn't come the way you want. So as we look at today's passage of Scripture, 
it's going to clearly lay out for us aspects of God. And let me just make it clear. God's not filling out an application, and God's not letting you read his resume. See, God's not looking for application. God's just letting you know of his occupation. Because he's not looking to overcome or overtake or be hired by anybody else. He's looking to let you know, here's who I am. And you better pay attention. And so, let's not short sell the fullness of God when we examine this text as we look at it together. Rather, let's see it as just a glimpse of the greatness of God. You know, we talked about the majesty of God, but here we're going to see another aspect of God that's so important from us, for us. And even though we are in a place where we'll never fully understand God, God graciously still lets us know of himself. So pay attention as we read verses 3 through 14 in Ephesians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to, adoptions as, to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of his glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heaven and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, would be to the praise of his glory. In him... You also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of your inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. Listen here to what's being said with the exuberance of this incredible song, through the apostle in Ephesians chapter 1. And it is overwhelming. If you're not overwhelmed, you need to keep going back and reading that passage over and over. You're not seeing it if you're not overwhelmed by the greatness of God that's presented here. And just in regards to us, although God's revealing himself, notice that in this text, God predestined us, God adopted us, God redeemed us, God forgives us, God seals us, and he pledges himself to dwell within us as an inheritance. That's the greatness of God. That's just how it impacts you. God is so great. But I want us to see today this insight into who God is and God revealing himself to us, not only by what he's done, but by just who he is as God. And let me remind you, the truth that we see from this text has brought great controversy, 
great concern, and it's even bothered a lot of people. And I'm talking about some of the greatest thinkers and theologians in all of human history. Not only then, but today as well. See, this passage reveals a reality beyond our realm that gives us a glimpse into the eternal. And as with all gifts, just as God's word is a gift to us, as with all gifts, the better we know what was given, the more we'll appreciate it. Certainly you've received one of those gifts that just baffled you. I mean, when somebody gave it to you, you might not even been certain what it was or what it is or what it's supposed to do or how it works or what exactly is this for. Let's not look at doctrine that way. The doctrine of this passage is a great gift to us given by God. And I know that word doctrine even causes some of us to just kind of, ugh, okay? But the doctrine here that we're receiving should cause us even a greater appreciation of even what we realize we can't understand. I know it's baffling. I know there's aspects of God that we'll never fully comprehend. But too many of us see doctrine as some classroom philosophical stuff that makes my head hurt. You ever, you ever felt that way? Okay. Well, just try wrapping your mind around the Trinity. And even though, as I said, we won't all fully comprehend it, none of us will in this lifetime. You need not fully understand it, but in knowing it, it will give you a greater appreciation of the gift that God has given us. And so today, let's draw the meat from this passage that should be an eternal feast for us. You know, the psalmist, when he talks about the law of the Lord, he says, it restores the soul, it makes the wise simple, it causes the heart to rejoice, it enlightens the eyes, it's sweeter than honey, and the honey of the honeycomb. I mean, God's word should impact us that way all the time. And as the psalmist invites, I invite you today to taste and see the goodness of God. So beyond his majesty, what can we draw from this passage in regards to the doctrine of the description of what we learn of God? Now, let me define doctrine for you. I believe Wayne Grudem does a great job of it. A short, simple definition of doctrine. Doctrine is what the Bible teaches as a whole. Okay? Don't draw doctrine from one verse. Don't base your theology on one chapter. Make sure the Bible as a whole supports the doctrine or the theology. And so, beyond the majesty and the salvation of the, and the goodness of God, the Trinity of God is unquestionable in our text today. And that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at this meat of the doctrine of the Trinity. Kevin DeYoung writes this, If any doctrine makes Christianity Christian, then surely it's the doctrine of the Trinity. If you've studied religions, you realize that. The Trinity stands uniquely alone in regards to religious views. And as we get into definitions, perhaps you'll greater understand that. Augustine wrote, In no other subject, talking about the Trinity, in no other subject is error more 
dangerous, inquiry more laborious, or the discovery of truth more profitable. So we discover truth, just like the law of the Lord, to make the wise simple, to enlighten our eyes, to encourage us, to help us know more. And let me make a clear statement about truth. Truth is not dependent upon your understanding of it. Truth is truth. And as you know, we live in a culture where that just seems to continue to be diminished. Truth is not relative to your understanding of it. Truth is still truth even if you don't understand it. And truth is still truth even if you don't know it. So don't let this doctrine of the Trinity give you a headache. Rather, instead, see it as God revealing himself to us and let it give you a heart lift and lead you to rejoicing as it does for the Apostle Paul here. Can you imagine what it must have been like for the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, to be penning these words? It must have been mind-blowing, heart-thrilling, life-changing. And the Apostle Paul had a pretty serious life change at one point. And how much greater this must have impacted him. See, no one benefits more than in what they know of God. You won't benefit more from anything else than of what you know in God. In fact, the Apostle Paul repeats it as the Holy Spirit leads him three times that this is all to the praise of His glory. Even the form of this text is Trinitarian. Talks about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in regards to salvation. If you see it as a hymn, as most commentators do, it's got three verses. Okay? So I trust that we'll see today what's clearly coming through in the different persons of the Godhead and the distinct roles that they play. And thus we call it the Trinity or the triunity of God. But Trinity is the common term doctrinally. And it just means three in one. Three persons, each being fully God and only one God. I know now is when your head starts to hurt, right? How, do, how, how can that be? How can that be? Remember, truth isn't relative to our understanding. Truth is truth. And so I challenge you as we walk through this text today, that even though we may never and even though we won't ever fully comprehend this, don't let it keep you from enjoying what is set before you. It's kind of like a good meal. I didn't have to watch the cook fix it. Just serve it up. And I'm going to enjoy it. I don't have to know all the ingredients. Right? So, let's look at the text together. The three persons are clearly identified here. Walk back with me, if you would, to verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 5, he predestined us to adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. Still talking about God. Still talking about God. So we see God the Father clearly identified. We see God working through Jesus Christ the Son clearly identified. And then if you drop down to verse 13... 
we see that those who are his are sealed. Okay, those who have believed were sealed in him, in Christ, with the Holy Spirit of promise. So we see this clear distinction of the three persons of the Godhead. They're easily identifiable by both description, by name, and by pronoun. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. All three being fully God, yet having distinct persons, playing distinct roles in the purpose and plan of salvation towards us. That should thrill us that God's done all that he's done for us. But remember, ultimately, it's all for his glory. So each in their essence, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, being God, yet distinguished as persons by their name and by their role. One of my favorite definitions or descriptions of this comes from Michael Horton's book, Pilgrim Theology, and he writes this. In every work of the Trinity, the Father is the source, the Son is the mediator, and the Spirit is the person who brings about within creation the appropriate effect. So you see God, Son, and Spirit, Father, Son, and Spirit at work. And these clear, distinct roles are what we see in our text in regards to our salvation. Continue with me as we walk through the text. In verses 4 and 5, it tells us that He, now let me fill in the pronoun for you there, God chooses us in Him. That pronoun is Christ. God chooses us in Christ before the foundation of the world. So you got Father, you got Son. In love, still in verses 4 and 5, in love, He, God, predestined us to adoptions as sons through Jesus Christ. To himself. Again, clearly named, clearly distinguished by the description of each person as well as through the pronouns. In other words, God the Father, before the world even was created, planned and purposed all things according to his kind intentions. How incredible is that? See why it's so difficult for us to relate? To God. (laughs) Most of us are just trying to get through today. (laughs) Thanks, I got a witness on that one. Most of us live each day just trying to get through the day. Just trying to get through the week. Just trying to get through the month. You know, God existed outside of time and space before he even created any of this. That's what makes it so difficult for us. It's a whole other realm, and yet God planned, purposed, did what he did in our realm, all because he's just kind. He's just good. He's just revealing his goodness and his kindness. So that's God the Father. Number two. If you look at verse 7, verse 7 says, In Him, the pronoun there is talking about Christ. In Christ, we have redemption through His, Christ's blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. But let me tell you, on days like today, 
I am grateful that Christ has forgiven me. Because it does not take much for me to blow it big time. It does not take much at all. And the more I realize the sin that so easily entangles me, the more I am grateful for a God who would so love and save me. Because I know me. I know me. I know the sin in my mind and in my heart. And oftentimes, if you're like me, we get to a level where no one else knows the sin that's going on in our heart and our mind. They only see that everyday sin that just comes out of you naturally. And yet I think, wow, how incredible is this that the Son, Jesus Christ, would come and would sacrifice himself to redeem me. In other words, to pay for all that I've done wrong and to forgive my trespasses. Glory be to God. Thanks be to Jesus. That's the sacrifice that Christ has made through his shed blood for my redemption, resulting in my forgiveness. And that's what the Father planned and completed through the Son. So we got Father, we got Son. But that's not all. You know, in a lot of areas, two out of three is good. But we're going for batting 1,000, three for three. Not just Father and Son, but the Holy Spirit. Look at verses 13 and 14. It tells us we are sealed, those that are His, are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. That word sealed comes from the first century Roman world where it could be anybody from a human slave to an animal to a piece of property. And it's what we would understand today as a branding. You know, ranchers, farmers brand their animals. So no matter where their animals are, you look at the brand and you think, oh, that animal belongs to so-and-so. It's that kind of idea. We are sealed in Him. In who? In Christ. Remember, it's Christ who sacrificed for our redemption and our forgiveness. We are sealed in Christ with who? You can look and answer. It's not a pop quiz. With who? Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit seals us in what Christ has already done. You have the Father planning and purposing, sending the Son. You have the Son redeeming and forgiving by His shed blood. And now you have the Holy Spirit, for those of us who are in Christ, sealing us, branding us, if you will. Giving us, as it goes on to say, and it kind of amps it up in the language, given as a pledge of our inheritance. So not only by that seal... Are you known to whom you belong? But that seal also brings with it an inheritance. And this is the pledge of that inheritance. So it's not only just a matter of property ownership, it's a matter of property sharing. God says, I not only own you, I now share with you. I now give to you what's mine and who I am. That's the Holy Spirit of promise that's given as a pledge. And that's still not the end. But wait, Johnny, tell them what they've won. (laughs) 
Follow with me. With a view. So this sealing in Christ by the Holy Spirit of promise, given as a pledge, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. There's an outcome in all of this. And you know, if you're like me just trying to get through today, usually I fall when I forget there's something greater than me at work. See, my focus becomes on me instead of on God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I stumble and fall because I lose sight of, here's what's behind door number three. It's a view to the redemption of God's own possession. You're God's possession. Sealed, pledged, possessed by God. For what reason? To his glory. Thank you. To his glory. See, God's just revealing all of his goodness. And how incredible is it that as good and kind and loving a heavenly father as we have, that he would use us to make that known. My growth group heard me say this not too long ago, but folks, we're just a bunch of cracked pots. That's how Paul describes it in Corinthians. Earthen vessels that are worn, cracked. And yet God himself is dwelling within us. Wow! Let me say it backwards. Wow! (laughs) Just in case you didn't catch it going forward. That's so incredible. That in Christ, all that the Father planned and purposed is now branded, pledged, and we are his possession. This clearly points out to that sealing into what Christ has done by the Holy Spirit that's given to the redeemed. And with that Holy Spirit, distinct from what Christ has done, is what makes us God's possession. That's how the Trinity is so clearly revealed. The three-in-one God in this passage. But I want you to note something today. I'm not going to give you some bumper sticker or t-shirt worthy slogan or saying that you can walk out of here with. And let me tell you why. Every one that I've ever heard is actually heretical. It's heresy. And I don't use the word heresy lightly. Heresy is that which is not only counter to biblical truth, but it actually subverts in contradiction to truth. So be careful Be careful in how you would perhaps talk about the triune God. Be satisfied with saying, I know he's three and one. Same essence, three different persons. Same nature, three different persons. Same person, three different persons. I mean, and just stop there if you have to. Because it's what the Bible teaches. And thus, we call it the doctrine of the Trinity. And and yet, oftentimes, we find comfort in slogans. But unfortunately, it oversimplifies, is heretical, and spreads confusion. Folks, God, three in one, cannot be reduced to the least common denominator. He's too great for that. He's so beyond us. 
So remember in this song of doxology that we have in Scripture for us that God's just looking for us to be in awe of who He is, even when we can't fully understand it. You know, I don't understand Bernelli's principle, but that doesn't keep me from using it and enjoying it. I couldn't even begin to explain how it all works. But that doesn't keep me from enjoying its effect and using it for my own benefit. So why would we ever shy away from the deep truths of God, which He reveals to us, as an encouragement to seek and to know and to enjoy Him more and more in just the knowledge of who He is, so that we might give him the praise that he deserves. In fact, I'm completely certain that all of us know the opposite of Bernelli's principle, even if we couldn't articulate it or not. You're experiencing it while you're here today. But especially when we experience the reality of who God is, the importance of the Trinity that's manifested itself through church history. And it's important that we understand that orthodoxy that's been developed throughout church history because those who have been in opposition to it have brought about tragic results. And so let me bring some clarity to our understanding of the Trinity from this passage as it relates to our salvation. And maybe you had a teacher in school who said, sometimes dealing with the antithesis helps better explain what's so difficult to put into words. And so let me deal with the antithesis of the true doctrine of the Trinity as drawn from Scripture. And I also warn the tragic results that have come. An orthodox view of the Trinity. So maybe this will help you if you understand what an orthodox view of the Trinity is opposed to and rejects. An orthodox view of the Trinity rejects monarchianism, which believes in only one person, but maintains that the Spirit and the Son subsist as kind of a divine essence, but are not distinct and divine in person. We reject that. The Bible doesn't teach that. Our passage today doesn't teach that. Modalism, which believes that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are different names for the same God acting in different roles. That is not the case. God's not just manifesting himself in three different ways. Arianism, which denied the full deity of Christ. Well, if you deny one of the three, you no longer have a trinity. All forms, and this is what impacts a lot of our world or a lot of uh, world religions today, is all forms of tritheism. We reject those. The three members of the Godhead, tritheism says, are actually three distinct beings and three separate gods. That is not true. The clear truth from Ephesians chapter 1 in response to all of those is that God himself, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, has made himself known to us, chosen to reveal himself and redeem his own in this way. And even shy of fully comprehending or completely understanding the explanation. It's okay to live in the tensions of eternal truth. Because remember, we live in a finite world. And there will be tensions. There will be 
aspects of God's truth that kind of just make us uncomfortable a little bit. It's okay to be uncomfortable. But take joy in the greatness of God, even as he reveals himself to us. Many, O Lord my God, are the wonders which you have done and your thoughts toward us, the psalmist says. There is none to compare with you. If I would declare and speak of them, they would be too numerous. From Psalm 40. I think way before the Apostle Paul recorded the book of Ephesians, the psalmist had it down. (laughs) God's beyond compare. God's more than I can speak or even think. Oh, and by the way, for those of you who are living in that tension or uncomfortableness, Bernelli's principle is a key component to flight. In other words, how airplanes work. <laughs> Bernelli himself was an aerodynamic engineer, actually born in the 19th century. And his principle was the vital part of the development of aerodynamics in the early and mid 20th century relating to lift. In other words, how a plane gets off the ground. How many of you understood and knew that? Okay. We got a couple of engineer types here. How many of the rest of you have ever gotten on an airplane? Yeah, a good number of us here. You didn't walk to the door of that plane and say, I don't understand how that wing and the thrust and all that stuff's going to work, so I'm not going. Why would we do that with God? God's infinitely greater than the laws of aerodynamics. And if you're wondering the opposite, which is tragic, it's called the law of gravity. And if Bernoulli's principle doesn't work, especially if it stops working when you get up in the air, then the law of gravity is not going to bring a good result. So let's not be so quick to dismiss that which we don't fully understand. We should have a greater appreciation for God in regards to as he continues to blow our mind with the truth of what the word teaches. Because that's how great he is. God has given us this great gift so that we would rejoice. The triune God, the Trinity, eternally existing in three persons as one God, has saved us from ourself, revealed himself to us as he is in the Trinity, And we should marvel at that unknown. In fact, it should drive us in pursuit and the thrill of the journey of getting to know God even better. Sinclair Ferguson puts it this way. In regards to this passage, it's not surprising that the Apostle Paul breaks into poetry and songs of praise. It's not surprising. The surprise would be that if he or we did not. I mean, to read this passage and soak in what it's telling us of God, I think Ferguson's got it right. How can you not respond into the majesty and praise of a glorious God? Would you join me in a word of prayer?